Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian... And a literature scholar... Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Are Black Knights just full of gears? Why does Aliyah, the sexiest noble, not simply dominate the others? And what is the appropriate level of sobriety to topple a government? There's no limit. The ends always justify the means. Nice Mean Girls reference. Still waters are the hungriest. Soninke is saying. Before we even get into a summary, I just want to note still waters are the hungriest. Still waters? I, I mean, just... unironically, there's a very real chance that the name of the formula, the spell, the ritual comes from this saying. I really thought you were going to go with a non-diegetic connection and <laughs> huh no that makes that just yes uh, but we can't stand this too long we need to cover what happens in this chapter so at the beginning of it black goes into his tent and he starts a call with Elia. so the first thing i noticed on reading this chapter was at the very beginning black tells us or the perspective the narrating voice tells us that there are layers of defensive wards around Black's tent, so many that even insects trying to crawl through would be instantly fried. And we don't get too heavily into wards in the series. I was thinking of the insects being fried, and I realized I really don't know what wards do in any specific sense other than they ward. Sometimes they can provide warning, sometimes they can provide barrier or death field apparently but i don't know their rules yeah it, it seems like wards are almost entirely i don't know bespoke each this the wards here are silence the wards here are killing insects the wards here are warning like you said there's so many different wards and it seems like they're each unique to the circumstance they're set up uh, I, it's hard to say i mean mag magic in this uh setting has some specific spells where you know you do the spell and the thing happens but it also just has a lot of just wiggle room for what happens and i don't know if wards fall under that entirely 
it's a it's a definitely a catch-all term for all sorts of defensive magic like defensive um unmoving magic permanent maybe not permanent but at least state static magic so yeah it's real hard to say which brings up the obvious question is the gloom award huh probably by like the philosophical category yes i don't know if it qualifies magically because it's the nature of it the the source of it is a little different than most other awards we see but eh? also to be fair i don't know if ward is in fact a magical category or a piece of the language used to describe one of 13 different categories of magic in a catch-all these are the defensive wall spells right which is why i said philosophical category the you know the idea of it rather than the strict scientific, but eh, yep, it, it, it's not exactly clear, and you know what? I'm pretty okay with that. In this chapter, we begin to really dig into the cracks in the relationship between the king and queen of praise, and there are fundamental tensions between the major fundamental tensions, which really foreshadow and threaten a lot of well-meaning dysfunction between them and less than well-meaning too but they they both do what they believe in but despite those tensions which they are aware of you know this chapter will bring more up we read that black's contact with the tower had been infrequent at best these last two decades letters took months and could be intercepted crying could be detected and even listened in on but now and then it became a necessity to talk with Elia face to face. And even when they know there are these problems, there's a whole lot of implicit trust in that situation. Because Black does function autocratically. His word is at least as good as the towers where he goes, which is one of the issues. But to just allow that and be if not comfortable with, comfortable not being comfortable with. These two really do love and trust each other, even if they disagree and have to plot against each other. And I like that. The level at which they plot against each other is always interesting, too. We see that several times throughout the story, where there there's disagreements that lead to actual oppositional plans. And I don't know, it it's a frustrating thing for me, because seeing these two oh we grew up together we're best friends we've always been best friends and we have the same goals yada and then they go against each other it seems like that level of trust isn't extended as far as i would like it to be but you know as far as i would want to be able to extend my trust to my dearest friend however i'm not uh a villain capital v villain i'm just a guy so that probably is built in i'm sure some of the cracks are uh, as much as these two are in control of what they are doing, more so than a lot of named, like that they step outside of stories and utilize the stories, I have to assume that some of these cracks that we see in this chapter and in other chapters are a result of their roles, uh, making sure that the villains can't all work together, happy-go-lucky forever. It just seems like that's such an inbuilt part of villainy in the setting. So Amadeus and Elia are friends, but the entities which try to pilot their lives perhaps are squabbling their <laughs> friends at sure. home and occasional opponents at work something like that yeah it's uh yeah i mean it's definitely it, it's cool to see the the tension here and it all feels 
like good friends who have a major disagreement, except there are a few lines that come out where uh, they each they each have a line or two that they deliver to the other that feels like, man, that that doesn't feel necessary. Like, how is this how is this relationship functioning when that's lying under it all? But I think that in and of itself speaks to the trust they have in each other, even if they butt up against that a lot. The, I mean, some of it is just a recognition of the fact that when it comes to ruling Prace the way that they want it to be ruled, there are two people who can do that, and it's it's these two. And they both recognize that fact. Of course, their interpersonal tensions are not the only reason they don't communicate as much as they would love to. In fact, the communication may exacerbate it because that's how communication works in relationships, but because scrying can be listened in on. They have to be sparing with their communication. Yeah, except that they've got a specially built tool by the warlock himself that lets them communicate with each other. Whoa, do they know the warlock? Yeah. They've got a <laughs> a mirror that's been, you know, cut in half and they're linked so deeply that you can connect them to talk through them. It, it's a neat thing. However, the protections are layered on here by the warlock again so heavily that uh, apparently, as far as Black knows, no one has ever survived the attempt uh, to eavesdrop on the conversation being had between these two pieces. That's uh, that's some heavy-duty stuff. That's uh, that's right on track with the warlock. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> the uh, there's you know they're looking into mirrors, and so Amadeus takes a moment to uh, recognize the fact that he has not really put any effort into making himself presentable. Because um, again, oldest friend. It, this is just how he is. But he does comment that, uh, despite that, that there's no stubble on his jaw because he hasn't needed to shave since he became the Black Knight. Um, which makes perfect sense. It fits with what we know with roles. You know, you kind of uh, achieve that, uh, I don't know, archetypical version of yourself as far as your self-conception goes. But am I wrong in remembering that Black does grow a beard during his time as the Grilgrim's prisoner i believe that to be the case and if it's not it's during his post name sojourns with his paramour oh sure yeah which i mean i know that's not a huge thing and it's not some big revelation oh, it's huge but it, it's it's cool that this mo you know we have this mention about the he doesn't grow facial hair and then when he does it's a nice extra layer of yeah he definitely is does not have that same self-conception that same name anymore like he's he's not that anymore it's it's just an another layer to what everybody is saying at that point speaking of what everybody's saying uh have you noticed militia's name not her name but her names i have they're amazing we get told that a gentle touch of the finger had the mirror rippling and after a heartbeat the silhouette of her most dreadful majesty militia, first of her name, tyrant of dominions high and low, holder of the nine gates and sovereign of all she beheld, appeared on the surface. That's just nice. That's a good list of titles. I plan to acquire a few more sometime soon. I'm in the market. No, I wish you luck. Thank you. Uh, speaking of Alaya, or militia in this case, um, Black is, you know, seeing her in the mirror, and they, they greet each other, and then... Uh, we get from Black that uh, Militia is, quote, undeniably one of the most beautiful women in the Empire. Technically true. I just, 
I take issue with some of the phrasing. One of isn't isn't militia kind of explicitly the peak? And also, I think if you're going to say one of the most beautiful, like how is it not all of Kalernia? Like I feel like everybody that talks about how she looks, it's basically oh yeah. When it comes to what humans can look like, she's she did it the best. Maybe this is modesty on the or you know humility on the on behalf of his friend here from Black. Because if there's one thing we know about Elias, that she's incredibly humble. Maybe it's just Ranger kept getting jealous, and you don't want Ranger jealous. <laughs> yeah, he's trained himself to say one of the most beautiful women. <laughs> Actually, I don't see Ranger getting jealous over that. Oh, not he at just all. realized there was a possibility that Ranger might decide to play jealous in the face of that, and and that wasn't worth for it. the sake of everyone. <laughs> yeah. So yes. This may come way out of left field, but Militia is hot. Okay. Kind of a non-sequitur, but all right. Yeah. She is also widely known to be only interested in women, which was, it says, amusingly enough, not much of a hindrance when it came to manipulating men. And sure, amusingly enough, but we know that's that's how men work. Oh, yeah. That 100% checks out. So, let me start that one again. Hey, idiot. Friends sometimes aren't nice to each other. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Do you disagree? No, I I don't disagree. That was that was well well demonstrated. I really can. Oh, you can wait, really wait, no, tell. Hold on. It was very. It was poorly demonstrated. Nice try, d- dummy. Well, we know that the Empress and the Black Knight are friends because the very first words of the conversation are hers. You have such an unpleasant smile. It always looks like it's at someone else's expense. I like them. Well, They're sort of friendship goals at, at a certain level, and only that level. I mean, it is worth saying that Black's response to that is to shamelessly admit it usually is, uh, meaning at someone else's expense. This feels less like friends being mean to each other and more her just acknowledging that he has an unpleasant smile. She doesn't say, you know, an ugly smile or anything. It's unpleasant because... When he's smiling, it's the it's because he's the Black Knight, and the gears are turning, and somebody's getting crushed beneath them, and they both recognize that. Getting crushed beneath him is an interesting point because that does seem to be a sore one with him. Well, one particular one. We are reminded again soon after we saw Warlock bring it up. What exactly Black has done in the past? As they trade a few barbs, Militia says, "At least I never toppled a foreign government drunk." Is this just the thing we mock Black for? Apparently, because it's come up a couple times. But it it's such a weird thing to be mocking him for, because is the point you shouldn't have knocked over the government, or is the point you shouldn't have been drunk while doing it? Because if it's the latter, I think that's just a testament to his skill that he was able to while less than sober. That said, I do enjoy the phrasing, because if you put the emphasis on the correct words then she's implying when I topple foreign governments, I'm always sober, which is great because how many has she toppled actually? Uh, not many that we know of. Maybe Callow if you count that, but that was also more black than anything. She certainly interferes, but... Right, but toppling? But in this, the, the I, like, I just enjoy the implication that maybe she has toppled a few, but she, she makes sure that she never does it when she's under the influence. I... I not to be some kind of boring old fuddy-duddy, but I'm just not sure which is better or 
rather which is less worse doing it sober or doing it drunk yeah i mean at least it is good to know that there's never a time where militia was up late and accidentally drunk cooed her friend or you know it, it's it's great it, it never the, there was never an accidental there's intentionality behind everything she did which as one of the premier evil people like one of the premier villains in colonia maybe not great but the self-control is at least commendable speaking of that which is commendable alaya figures things out really quickly mm-hmm. they managed to finally intercept one of cordelia's people which we learned last chapter and Black asks if they found a way around the Augur's abilities, and Elias says, We think she can only foretell it if it's been planned. We're moving additional agents into place to create more opportunities. Which we know is right. Because, again, Agnes told us. And I love her. But, wow. She took one piece of information and very successfully extrapolated from it. Congrats. Yeah, it's kind of like what we talked about a couple of chapters ago with Kat. The... You can tell when a character in a story is incredibly smart and good at this kind of thing because they are able to make what seems like an educated guess, but they're just right because they're just that good. And this this feels like that kind of thing where it's, uh, yep, I've figured out with, you know, the, the inf- information's out there and I've definitely figured it out and, you know, she's right. Both Black and Militia are very good at figuring things out and exceptional at planning, but they are... And I think that's one reason why Catherine, at this point, could not win in a head-to-head combat, even if power levels were more equal with either of them. They're both very capable of dealing with the vicissitudes of fortune. Chaos does not upset their plans, only activate contingency. Of course, some chaos is good. We see that having the tyrant take the throne was an unexpected surprise, the knight shrugged. I won't complain if it helps, but it was never something we'd planned to rely on. I'd rather she spent time on the free cities than dealing with the Dominion. They're managing to have Hassenbach be distracted by something they never really planned for. To be fair, you simply cannot plan for Kairos. It, it's, we, we didn't, you know, the tyrant did something. It was an unexpe- unexpected surprise. Yep, that's, <laughs> that's Theodosian for you. And always a pleasure for everyone who's not victim to it. To everyone who's not in any way involved with the situation, yes. Forgive my pronunciation as I've only read about this, but do you know about the Great Wall of Gorgan? Gorgan? I'm unfamiliar. The Great Wall is now is in what is now Iran by the Caspian Sea, and it's just a big old wall. Oh. It's known by the name the Red Snake, which makes it a red snake wall. And the reason this interests me is because the Dominion has a red snake wall at its northern border, which makes it unassailable. We don't hear much about the red snake wall. This is the first we hear about it. We never really delve too deeply into it, if I'm not mistaken. It seems like a nifty thing. And it has bases in something near the Caspian Sea, which is, as far as I think is relevant in the loose real-world Loose but clear, real-world inspirations. Kind of in the neighborhood of the Levant, and so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It fits. I think it's, it's cool, and I didn't know about it until I looked up Red Snake Wall because I was trying to get to the wiki page, and then I never made my way there, if there is one, because I ended up on Wikipedia. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that tends to be how these things work. 
if you ever get where you're going on the internet, you have done something wrong or worse, fallen for capitalism's lies and made yourself productive. Speaking of things that are unproductive, they move on from discussion of Hassenbach and Elias says, I have other concerns. And she just goes straight for it. This rebellion, you could have put this whole matter to rest months ago. She details exactly how. And the knight just says, true. I don't know how many people would keep their head, much less their position, in the face of admitting to the empress that they have deliberately allowed a small insurrection to metastasize into full-scale rebellion. It's, I mean, it's, it's, we'll see here in a bit the details, but it boils down to she doesn't always agree with him and vice versa, and definitely methods, methodology can be called into question, but she trusts that he has a plan, and a good plan, like, it's the Black Knight, his plans are good and functional and are for the betterment of the Empire, and she trusts that, and so she's willing to hear him out, even as she's dressing him down. The only problem is, his plans will work out, but what goals has he chosen to pursue with the plans? Because um, they, they balance differently. Yeah, his objective here is a big one. Aliyah guesses that it's a training exercise for Kat, uh, that it's just him setting something up for her to have some field experience. But no, um, he has a pretty straightforward objective, he says. I am putting an end to the rise of heroic names in Callow. May, may I just... Yeah, that's a large... Add a comment on this? Yeah, go for it. Dude. Uh-huh. That, that's a large eyebrow raise for me. <laughs> that is... There are, there are lofty goals, and then there's whatever this is. But Black is... Already has fundamentally changed a system in a way that has fundamentally changed the story. And rather than consolidate, he's... Well, I guess in consolidating, he's continuing to do so. He is a monster. Yeah. The very worst kind, in fact. <laughs> true, true. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, there's a number of ways he could be going about this. You know, we, we know that Black has some pretty lofty ambitions for the totality of his time as a villain. You know, we delve into that a little bit here and there. But even for this one, he explains that, uh, first of all, Elias says, you know, we've never managed to really do anything close to this. And the Black Knight reveals that this is about Catherine. It's not for Catherine, but because of her that it works. It, it boils down to Catherine is not one of the Precy. She's Callowin. And so we get from him a, a summary of why, this, why he thinks this will work and what he's hoping to accomplish in detail. And from this, it's, I just have to say, it's so nice when reading this story that there are genre savvy folks in the story who interpret what's going on alongside us it feels like black is reading the story with us and kind of you know offering up the analysis of what's going on which is great uh, black does this more so than pretty much anybody but uh it is it's cool to see when it does happen he says this narrative is about Kalos soul which of two paths it should take in the coming years? The swordsman's revolution at all costs? Or the squire's appropriation of the system? He sets this up as not just, yeah, we get cat in power and 
how it was inspired by a Callowin being in charge again and the rebellion. No, this is a Callow in charge of Callow using Precy's system to enforce her rule, but it's a Callowin using that system. It's making it so there's no need for heroes because there's a more there's a, a the proper ruler is in place. There's no rebellious named coming after Black because there's a Callowin in charge. Precy systems are there, but Prace is not. And it's remarkable looking from the end how very successful he is at this and how fundamentally catastrophically the mid near to midterm future for Prace goes. Also, it's amusing that this very plan of his is what leads to Cat being branded the arch heretic. Uh he wants a Callowin in charge to make sure there aren't heroic names coming up against her. And then it turns out that she's the Black Queen of Callow, and the Grilgrim comes at her with this argument in reverse. She can't be in charge because she is tainting the soul of Callow by being evil. It, it, it's cool to see the, the two sides of this exact same plan come at with Kat as the focal point from, you know, the, the opposing uh, mirror is not the right word, but uh, the sort of continental rivals with the Grilgrim and Black who, who fill a lot of the same strategic, uh, a lot of the same narrative weight, at least in the, for our story. I think it says something, to get us directly back on track, of course, mm-hmm. about the Grilgrim, that he's following the same story tracks as Black. He's seen the same future. He knows how stories work as well as Black does, but he's just a merciful sheeple who will obey the gods to the graves of a thousand children. And Black is a monster who will break all the rules and all the world to rebuild it how he wants, no matter how many innocents he has to trample to do that. Well, I think I think there's a little nuance there that needs to be hit. I'm not sure that's on brand for us. Cat <laughs> is wanting to break and rebuild. Black is just wanting to break, and not in like the ah chaos means we everybody get. But you know, it's it's not just you know the Joker. Uh, we're gonna watch the world burn. But the freedom that comes from the breaking of the system is his thing. Grilgrim is built into the system and trusts in the system in a way that almost no other rational character does. And even he struggle isn't necessarily all the way there. But a lot of heroes are huge into the system. Wow, it's wild that good is the status quo um but a lot of the heroes are so just locked into the system but they don't critically think about it i'm you know thinking of like the mirror knight who's head empty brain a battering ram um and he's just okay with things until he gets that tutelage under the grilgrim there's some some training there um you know a little bit of development but the grilgrim knows what the system is and is fully bought into it he's he's the rational proponent of the status quo to go against Black's rational opponent of the status quo, which is a, a fun setup because it's all through Kat's perspective. Like if it weren't for Kat, I don't think those two would fill the same narrative niche because one is a mentor and one would not have been otherwise. But with Kat tying the two of them together, they really come up as as the rivals, as the opponents to represent the two different sides of the not necessarily good and evil, but the status quo, and I, it's it's just a cool a cool thing to to see there, which is definitely happening in this chapter, right? Oh, we're not alone in looking toward the future, okay? Elias says 
And if Catherine wins, Amadeus corrects when she wins. What? They're looking ahead. What a good dad. Just automatically 100% sure that Kat is going to win. Not even a, like, I know she's going to, but just there's no question here. Uh, yes, what a good dad, but not because he's convinced she'll win, but rather because he knows her well enough to know that she'll win. Right. But yeah. yeah. So the Empress notes that when she wins, the heroes will stop rising to oppose her until she succeeds or loses her way. And that's, as we noted, true insofar as Black's plan is, but then they come from the West. So you made it halfway. In the book four prologue, there are heroes in Callow that Catherine takes out. Mm -hmm. They're not Callowin. I had to check, and I did. The plan works completely. Yeah. That's... Though here, her book names do appear again with Arthur. But True, but that's a different situation. It, it's also important to note that Arthur is not a heroic name against Cat. He is in her hierarchy. He is one of her subordinates directly. Oh, the gods must hate them. <laughs> Honestly. Um, but the way the Empress uh, says this here is that she's worried about his plan. They've both. She says they both walked this line before, but this is something else. She says, you're trying to manipulate the forces driving a role. Calling this playing with fire wouldn't be doing it justice. And I don't know, this is an interesting line for her to walk, because isn't that what Black is nearly always doing? It's what he's been doing in Callow. He's keeping an eye out for an apprentice. They've talked about guiding names into the role that, or into the function that they want. It's what black does all the time when he manipulates stories i mean that at the base level that's what he's doing and it's explicitly what the bard does it's what cat learns to do it's what cat gets a role based around doing in fact i understand elia's hesitation here but I, i'm wondering if this is then a turning point where this sort of thing becomes more possible and more real and more acceptable or whether that's because uh, the the creation is shifting, or because it's just this confluence of factors and people and personalities are what led it to be possible now, or if it's something that's always been around and militia just wasn't aware of the depth of it or the differences. I, I don't know. It's just a, it's a comment that when you know what Black's been up to and what everybody gets up to, it's an interesting line for her to draw. It may well be an issue of scale here. Just rather than guiding a person, rather than playing a mentor, which absolutely manipulates the role and it's a very established thing. He's trying to teach a country how to be. That's fair. That's that's a bit. That's fair. That it, it could just it could very well just be scale. I, I can get behind that. Speaking of scale, or perhaps an issue of scale, the Empress knows that this could cost us callow in the long term. She does not want to have to put down a Legion trained native army in thirty years. I, I think black and militia need to talk more. I think they could really get some important thoughts out, but 30 years is very optimistic, turns out. Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. And Kalo's not the only issue at hand. No, uh, Black Knight brings up Proser as another concern here, and Militia says, frankly, she says something that is frankly the most wrong she is. Well, maybe not the most. It's an instance of her being more wrong than almost any other time in the entire story. 
when Black says, uh, you know, rebellions will keep cropping up and it's only a matter of time until the Principate is able to mount an invasion again. We can't be fighting on two fronts, all these things. And Militia's response is, Brosur is being handled. Uh, hey, Militia, I know you're really good at this whole realpolitik, war of nations, like contest of nations situation. But man alive, did you miss the mark on that one. <laughs> May I be generous? Sure. It's not so much that she thinks it's under control. It's that she doesn't need him buddying because his methods would be much more slash and burn, as it turns out. She's She wants to keep this on the battlefield of diplomacy and intrigue. So less I have it under control and more I'm going to... This is my sphere. Yeah. All right. I'm handling it. Fair. It might not be handled, but I'm I'm there. I mean, she does go on to say that uh, Cordelia won't be in a position to make a move for at least two years, and uh, that she's setting up more things to slow her down more. So she does think she's got a pretty good handle on Proser, and I think she's off on that. I don't remember the exact timeline going forward, but it feels like she maybe uh, underestimates Cordelia a bit, which is fair. Cordelia's new. And nobody's really aware of her full glory yet. No, it's clear there's something up with her because even calamitous attempts on her life just don't make, just don't hit their mark. Yeah, there's sort of a throwaway line of just like a little bit of background here where we don't get any more information on this. But apparently, Assassin had been sent to take her out twice and failed twice. Oh, okay. Uh, a. Wink named, who's based on assassination, has failed twice to kill someone without a name? Okay, then. Of course, knowing what we know, even were this our first read-through, not the most shocking thing for the reader, because I will always bet on Agnes Hassenbach. Sure, sure, sure. But, that's scary. Or if not scary, at least concerning. I guess you don't have to be scared that a head of state manages to avoid even supernaturally good assassination it's frustrating but it was never a guarantee she has a famously um famous is probably not the right term for what i'm about to say she has a very good spy network uh according to black and militia here so it, it makes some sense that she's able to protect against subterfuge like that um but she's also able to defend against more military more militaristic issues because uh Black says, hey, these two years that you're talking about, that's not enough time. Because even if we raised another five legions tomorrow, Poster would still outnumber us nearly two to one in professional soldiers. That is, those are some rough numbers. And I get that uh, Prace just had a war a generation ago and can't really utilize all of the manpower under its control for soldiers because half of, probably frankly, well more than half of its population can't really be trusted. But even if you add, you know, 20,000 soldiers, you're still outnumbered two to one. Even if you increase your total by 30%, you're still outnumbered two to one. That's that's not great. It's not great. Though, there are more factors in the math here because we know that Price has unusually, not even unusually, Price has the best superterranean army out there? Well, the, out the best in Colonia. The best infantry is there. The best superterranean infantry. Right. And we know that the Prosser model 
is going to be better than peasant levies because they do have a professional soldiery class mm -hmm. or at least category, but also it's focused around war bands more than armies, which yeah. war bands then led by disparate princes. But Prace has a quality advantage, Prosser has a number advantage, and home field advantage if Prace tried to get to them. Whereas Prace doesn't really enjoy a home field advantage when Prosser gets to their far reaches. There, I mean, it's different styles of warfare, and it's also sort of what we talked about with the orcs, where an individual Proserin Phantasin probably is a better fighter, better warrior than an individual legionary, because that's just not how legionaries are trained. But a block of infantry is going to beat light infantry most of the time on a normal battlefield. And so the the best infantry in the world, sorry, the best super terranian infantry in the world uh, does a lot there. There's also the fact, though, that uh, the head of state of Proser has at, at her beck and call one of the best fortune teller names alive right now. So uh, not great. Not great for Prace. Not great for Prace right now, but in the end, possibly very great for all of Kalernia. Yeah, yeah, fair. Just <laughs> Arguably, Agnes Hassenbach did save every remaining person's life. So True. write that down. I will write down that Agnes Hassenbach saved everybody's life. Fantastic. We can post a picture of your note on the Patreon. So remember how I said the Empress effectively analyzes situations from the first? Yes. I'm just going to read a quote. What does your squire actually intend to do if she gets her way? I've yet to discern an actual plan of action from her. She just strolls from one mess to the next. So she's got Catherine pinned. Yeah. <laughs> she, she definitely does not miss the mark on that one. <laughs> but where she nails Catherine like that, she kind of misses the mark talking about Black uh, a bit. Uh, they kind of go back and forth here. And then the Empress says, we have to actually run the Empire. We're no longer the conquering underdogs. We are running the territory we have taken and the lands we control now. And she says, you would know this. <clears throat> If you hadn't spent the last 20 years playing soldier abroad. Hey, Militia, this is the literal Black Knight. He doesn't play soldier. He is the soldier of the Empire. Like, that's his thing. That is his role, is to be the soldier, your right hand when it comes to doing military things. He, he Saying he's playing soldier is like saying that uh, the warlock is out there playing with magic it, it's just he's not playing with tricks or he's not playing with swords he is the pracy soldier yeah but you got to be disdainful i mean okay fair and she needs to be disdainful because she's introducing her battlefield which frankly just doesn't seem only superficially to be an equivalent they they the nobility has been making demands carefully and strategically and diplomatically, and they've leveled major threats against the Empress. But their demands are officially moderate. They want the reinstatement of goblin breeding restrictions to pre-conquest levels, the end of tribute reduction for clans who provided legionaries, and they also want tributes that went unpaid under Nefarious to be collected retroactively with interest. And 
Well, I'm not a fan of any of these. Uh, on the subject of goblin breeding restrictions, mm-hmm. well, that's gross. Yep. And also, how would that be enforced? Aren't the goblins like very decidedly unmonitored or unsupervisable? Aren't they in their warrens? And yeah. doing their own thing. I I was wondering the same thing. What are they tagging goblins? Like what? What's the play there? I I do not understand. Is it just the thing is if you tagged a goblin, one would come back the next day, completely different color, size, and sex, and claim to be the same goblin. I mean that's fair. It and you wouldn't be entirely sure that it's not. It seems like one of those things where it's we want to be able to say this and do a census and yeah sure the census is going to be wrong but it's the principle of the thing maybe i'm not sure which the problem with doing a the principle of the thing law is it encourages flaunting of the law generally because you are saying we don't care about this one really because we cannot enforce it so i'm not really sure what the end goal is there it's such a weird demand honestly if I'm forced to think up a way they could do anything with this, would they be just worried about whether the matrons breed and are they interacting with the matrons enough? And is a pregnant because ma- ma- the the matrilineal lines are better, maybe. Maybe. Also, I wonder what percentage of huh? I wonder if there's like a a way that praise could enforce it because. The goblins import food, maybe, and you could limit how much food. Oh. I, 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 just sheer guessing over here, but that could be a part of it. I'm not necessarily willing to buy it, but I'll definitely lease it. Hey, that's all I can ask right now. In this economy, right? So, black's cool. The yeah. demands from the True Bloods are going for the reforms. They're going against the reforms. They're trying to cut down the reforms rein them in. But they've already been reined in, we know, because they've stopped other steps forward. And the example that comes to mind here is Black's own attempt to have noble titles granted to clan chieftains had been tabled for at least the next decade. And sometimes the things granted to the tribes and the clans seem to be extremely baseline, like, hey, we're not imposing breeding restrictions. Aren't we great? But this is one that, this is huge. Can you imagine just having three or four clan chiefs as nobles equivalent to the great lineages of Wolof or Thalassina? It, it is good. I mean, it's a, it's a classic case of no conscription without representation, I guess. No, no levies without repies. That's what I'm going with. I think I hate it. But I might love it. <laughs> Somewhere between the two, yeah. However, the Empress is less than unwilling to hear out the True Bloods and less than unwilling not to deny them. And one of her reasonings, which I generously don't consider to really be her reasoning, but rather the stance she's choosing to take on political grounds, is that demanding that the tributes that went unpaid decades ago be paid now with interest yeah the justification for that demand is 
They broke the law by ignoring their obligations to the tower, even if Nefarious was unfit to rule. Which is always just heartwarming. Yeah, when you have to fall back on, no, but the law says your argument is not not a great one. And then the Empress agrees with the Truebloods in saying that too large a portion of our armies is not human. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to say kinda. Pretty icky. I think I would like to not hate her. I don't terribly feel like I'm being given that choice. Yeah. I do have to say, related to that, then Black Knight says then that humans make out four legionaries out of ten, and that only orcs come close to that. So just on, like, demographics here, am I missing anything, or are the legions made up of humans, orcs, and goblins? Ogres, in small quantity. Okay, we'll throw ogres in as a pretty small percentage, sure. Five maximum, I think. So... The- I don't really know. Right. It, it, it feels like there wouldn't be much more than that. And a vampire and a dragon. Right. Okay. So there's two more non-humans out of... And Kellowins. <laughs> yeah. Out of the, just what, 70,000 legionaries or whatever there are. So he says that humans make up 40%. So if we say, what, 5% ogres, just we'll be generous there and say 5%. He, he says only orcs even come close to that number, to the 4 out of 10. If you say... I'm just like trying to figure out where these numbers are that makes it seem that drastic unless she wants a pure majority of humans because 40% humans, let's say 5% ogres, that leaves 55% between orcs and goblins. And if orcs are the only ones that are close to 40, what's that, 35-20, 30-25 between those two? It doesn't, yep. it doesn't feel like there's a dramatic gulf that Black is pointing out here. I don't know, there's... These numbers, I I would not have guessed prior to this that there were that many non-humans in the legions, frankly. And I would not have guessed specifically that there were that many goblins, because there's no way for there to be... If goblins have to be less than orcs and orcs are less than 40%, I would have expected hardly any goblins. You know, 10% of the legions or something like that. So these numbers are just all around kind of surprising to me. And I think it shows Black's perspective pretty well to then say that the humans 5 to 10% numerical advantage in the legions is so vast to look and be like, no, there are humans everywhere. Statistically, they're the most common. In fact, I'd say for every three orcs, there's four humans. That's huge. It shows how both in the numbers he is by knowing that and also how much he doesn't overstate, overthink the role of the greenskins from some, I don't know, culturally taught disgust reaction. True. Good black. Like you. Good job. It's just, it's, that would, there's just so many goblins in the legions. I, that, that's really weird to me. Maybe I'm, I mean, th- to be fair, this is all based on my conception, not like there was a point in the text previously where it implied that the goblins were, there was only, you know, no. 8,000 goblins in the entire legions or anything like that. It just, Turns out there's a lot more than that, and it's surprising to me. We know that the goblins are special. We know that the ogres are super special. We know that orcs and humans are not particularly special. Mm-hmm. It's just making it add up changes the nuance of some specialties. Maybe they're including, like, tapirs in this. Hmm. Wait, isn't it a whole vampire legion, actually? Is it? These are not the details that we're really even given to focus on, but... Hmm. I don't know. 
regardless, the legions are very important. And that becomes the crux of the issue. Aliyah thinks that with this racial distribution, that's over half of our legionaries born to loyalties other than the tower, which isn't entirely untrue given the way the society is divided, but it does make me feel gross. But Amadeus points out that the point of the reforms is to give them a stake in the empire, and Hakram is proof of that. Mm-hmm. He's an unprecedented role bound to the legions of terror in the hands of an orc, and Eliam points out something that is key and important and real, because she says, yes, bound to the legions, not the tower. And that is true. In fact, we can see very well that in the later events of the story that the legion's connection to the tower is through and according to black. And that makes this sort of a wedge of Elias' own devising. Watch out, my dear friend. It is your petard by which you are being hoisted. It is, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely a concern for a government when your entire military is beholden to someone other than you. And that's going on here. And, and the legions being a separate entity was a very powerful tool in gaining control. But at this moment, Eli is not a fan and Black tries to call her on it. He says, we're better than this. You're better than this. If we begin to doubt each other now, all we built will come down on our heads. They are. He's seeing that this moment is her growing concerned about the loyalties, not just of the legions, but frankly of him. Because if she was completely unconcerned about Black, why does it matter that they are loyal to him when he's loyal to her? But she is concerned about that. Even if he were replaced, if he died and was replaced, his replacement probably couldn't turn on the tower. And if Black's not going to turn on the tower, right, exactly. what does it matter? Exactly. And she, the, the discussion here takes a turn because he says that, you know, that we can't doubt each other. This all collapses. And rather than backing down or saying, I'm not doubting you or I'm just, you know, there's the optics to consider. None of that. She doesn't go for any of these good options, these functional options. She says, you think I enjoy this, Maddie? Gods, you're the only person I've been able to trust since I was 17. You may well be the only man in this entire empire I can call a friend. But the knight spoke quietly. And she follows it up with, but in the end, there can only be one person sitting on the throne. He says, I trust you more than anybody, but I am on the throne and it has to be that way. This is what I was talking about early on and sort of what we kind of mentioned happens a couple times, but this really feels like the dread empress being pulled towards needing to be the sole power in praise rather than Aliyah being able to consciously decide how power should be split up in praise. She's, you know, incredibly brilliant. She's unbelievably capable, uh, nearly peerless in Kalernia. Like the number of people who are on her level politically could be counted on one hand. But she can be a real dummy sometimes, and I think part of that is just her name, her villainous name, saying, you are the power, and there's no way around that. Side note, uh, Legion 10 is two-thirds undead, by the way. That is... And that is not the Legion that is under command of the vampire, that's the one under the dragon. Uh, They're two-thirds undead because the dragon keeps burning their own soldiers. Huh, just like... Elias burning her own bridges. That's like it. Her name 
is not wrong in that she has not been the sole power in actuality. Black has been king of Callow, in fact, if not a name, for the last 20 years. And that hasn't been a problem, but... But... That acknowledged, I do want to note something that sounds kind of just like a flip observation, but I think it's, in this world, really meaningful. And that is that if Black has been king of Callow, in fact, at least, if not a name, it does make his daughter a rightful heir. And... I just think that might help her story along a little bit. Yeah, no kidding. She does slide naturally into that role, and the person she takes it from is not the Empress, except in legal legality. Huh, that's interesting, yeah. Uh, there you go. Cat deserves to be ruler of Callow. Divine right. All royal lines should be genetic. Because if nothing else, that makes it easier to cut off. You heard it here first, folks. Royal lines should always be genetic. So Black and militia fall into i'd like to say philosophical debate but more philosophical argument and the way this argument kind of ends is black kind of goes on a tear you know i've been fighting for this empire for 40 years i've done all these things but i do not regret it because it worked he's he's saying we took the laughing stock of the continent we took praise the flying fortresses the talking tigers and we made an empire we made the price that matters that is a world power and uh he you know this whole thing is great but he just black has some of the best lines in this series when he gets going and this is one of those where he at the end of this speech he bears his teeth and he says we go back now and we're no better than those who came before us race is not special it is not unique it is not predestined for greatness, and neither are we. The moment we forget that, we deserve to lose. It's such a good line. This whole speech is great, but that line is so good. Price is not special. It isn't the protagonist of the story. It isn't the center of Colernia. It's not the most powerful population center. It doesn't have the titans. It doesn't have the elves. It doesn't have the drought. It's just a nation of not even a nation. It's just a state whose population is mostly humans with some client states that are not human, that they use as their foot soldiers. It's praise. They're not going to be the next big empire automatically. It's because of the work of very competent people that they are successful. And when they start to rest on their laurels, when they start to go back to the idea of power for power's sake, for the the almighty magic of the tower they're going to fall because that sets them up for an easy band of five swinging in and chopping them down. And black not only says that will happen, but that it should happen. It's so good. He is a principled man, but not deluded. And I just got to say, I also really like seeing someone not think that there is some sort of magic predestination for their state because that's actually a common view in modern, officially secular America. And that's such a thing to try to have conversations around when that's just floating there. I mean, America's had a history of that. We go back to Manifest Destiny. And yeah, I mean, it's just this country's pretty big on that kind of thing. Yeah. But you know what? Hmm. We're all under a lot of pressure these days. Oh, my gosh. 
after his big speech, Elias says, are you done? And Black basically gives this, am I? I've wondered, do I, you know, has my role caught up with me? If I'm as mad as they say, yada, yada, yada. And he says, please think about this. And Aliyah dismisses him in the most brutal way. She says, I forget sometimes that you're under just as much pressure as I am. I'd say it's because you so rarely show weakness, but it's not much of an excuse. I should know better. Get some sleep, Amadeus. And then, you know, she says, end the rebellion. We'll revisit this when both of us are in a better state. What? She just like, that is such, that's the kind of line that when somebody says it to you, does nothing to help the, the state of things. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. How could I forget that you are emotionally compromised right now? We should come back to this topic when you're, sorry, when we're in a better mental state to have it. It is brutal. It's like, of all the arguments they have and all the, you know, I don't know if I can, the lack of trust that's starting to build, the fractures, this is the one where I came away thinking, how does their relationship survive this comment where she so brutally and condescendingly dismisses the person that's supposed to be her only friend? Would you believe I didn't read that similarly? Really? I'll take that as a no. You Did you read it more as a like actual concern for her friend? I read it with the opening of I forget sometimes who the I forget sometimes that you are under just as much pressure as I am. An admission of I've been writing off your side, your concern and your actions as not undertaken in the same situation I'm in. And so I have unfairly even lent on you this conversation. I've treated you as someone not involved in the situation as I am not engaged. I'd say it's because you were so rarely show weakness, but that's not much of an excuse. I should know better. I came at this less than effectively. Interesting. So you, you're taking what she's saying at face value that it's uh, uh, more or less an apology and an olive branch face softened. Yeah. She's also the dread empress of praise who explicitly has basically perfect face control. (laughs) I don't know. I suppose I can see that. But just the way the conversation is going, she has gotten so... The the tail end of this conversation has her feeling dismissive already. Like, he goes on this big, Price is not special. We're not special. We have to constantly be innovating and being better than everybody else. And her response was an emotionless, are you done? And then she goes on to, oh, I forget that you're under a lot of pressure and that's why you're acting like this. That, I mean, that's, that's how I'm reading it. I can see where you're, what you're saying could be there, but to me, it definitely feels dismissive rather than apologetic. That's a tough one. I don't think you're reading it's unfair. Yeah, likewise. I, that's, that's interesting. So, uh, listener, if you read this a specific way, let us know. If you read it a, a different way that we're not considering, let us know. Because that is a we're, – we're coming at this with pretty drastically different interpretations on this discussion. So I'd love to hear some, some outside thoughts. What I do appreciate, though, and think we'll be on the same page about, is her command to Amadeus is end the rebellion, which is at the end of get some sleep and everything else. End the rebellion. An instruction, but I don't even take it as a command. I see it as a, okay, you know what? Get some sleep, end the rebellion, then we'll go talk about this. But it's on the same tier as get some sleep, because, you know, Amadeus finish this yeah. take nobody's really concerned exactly 
It's a take care of yourself, take care of your house, take care of your rebellion. And then once we're... Take your medicine. Yeah, exactly. It's the exact... <laughs> it does feel like that. Get this over with. You're dragging it out. There's no reason to procrastinate on it. Just, you know, lace up your boots and just kill the, the lone swordsman and be done with it. Which, to be fair... No. Uh, yeah. But it is... He's let it get big enough that it's not that easy anymore, I think. Well, you know what I don't find to be very easy anymore? Oh, no. What's that? This podcast. That's... Maybe we should abandon the whole project. Well, we should definitely abandon it, at least for now, because that is all the time we have for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, as we discuss... Dealing Liquor. Wooing Pickler. And Catherine Getzer. Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata as a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguideevil.wordpress.com. Enter music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Waves and Tears, Sad Piano Music with Calm Ocean Waves by Julius H. Music for Black Speech was Cinematic Dramatic by Alex Zavessa. Outer music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine is, of course, The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at this point, multiple patron exclusives. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artist who makes this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 13, Fireside.